0: You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. On April 25th, 2014, a button was pressed that put Flint, Michigan, on the map. And with a press of a simple button, the switch was made to change the drinking water supply from Lake Huron to the Flint River. There was mounting pressure from a budget shortfall, and the decision was made to um, switch the supply in order to cut spending and avert the budget crisis. See, residents weren't even supposed to really notice the switch. It was just supposed to kind of happen. It, you know, the supply changes, and then they're able to uh, save money, and no one's supposed to know. It was considered a no-brainer decision to save money. Now, what followed, you probably know what I'm talking about, in that fateful push of a button, is the well-documented Flint water crisis. After the switch, in the coming days, residents started to complain about the taste and the smell and the appearance of water. See, the problem is that unlike Lake Huron, the Flint River is extremely polluted, highly corrosive, and difficult to treat. And the city also failed to apply corrosion inhibitors to the water, and soon that really toxic, caustic water began to eat away at the old lead pipes uh, in the city, and it caused lead to leach into the water system at very unhealthy levels. One local pastor Said he knew something wasn't right when the General Motor Company stopped using the water in their factories because it was causing corrosion on their auto parts. I mean, just think about that. GMC was like, yeah, we can't use this water anymore. It's 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 destroying our metal auto parts, and yet the people are supposed to drink this water. People started breaking out in rashes from using the water for bathing, bathing. Local hospitals started to notice harmful upticks in lead in children. And even after they switched back to the Lake Huron water system, the damage had been done to the pipes, leaving residents without safe drinking water. See, good intentions to save uh, money ended up costing taxpayers many times over. Public safety was ignored as over 100,000 residents were exposed to elevated lead levels. Something as basic as clean water was found to be corrosive and poisonous. And in the aftermath of the Flint water crisis, it's become like a case study in the failure of leadership. Under pressure, foolish and rash decisions were made. Like the city water, wisdom had become contaminated. Politicians were using their words instead of to help offer hope to people to fight to save their careers. The Flint water crisis was not the result of one bad decision that could happen to anybody. Rather, it was the result of ignoring wisdom and refusing to course correct uh, to get back on the path of wisdom. This morning, as we continue in our series through Ecclesiastes, the search for meaning, meaning we're going to get a master course in wisdom from the preacher. Have you seen those things out there? You can learn anything. If you want to become a good barbecue or if you want to become a good or if you want to become a good musician, there's all these master courses, people who are subject matter experts in their field, and you can watch and learn from the masters. That's what's happening this morning. We get a master course in wisdom. If you remember from last week, Solomon looked us square in the face and said, you're going to die. You don't know when, so enjoy your life. And he knows that because of sin, Some of us might have a tendency to say, listen, if I'm going to die and I don't know when, I might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And to use that license to go and enjoy life and use it as a license for sin and foolishness, to live for selfish pleasures instead of godly enjoyment. That would be the advice of fools. Just eat, drink, be merry. Nothing really matters. That's not what he is saying. Wisdom says, yes, you're going to die. And yes, God has given you the gift of life to enjoy, but do it within the bounds of godly wisdom. Now, I'm not sure if it, when, when Becca was reading our passage this morning, you might have thought, man, this, this sounds like all over the place. You know, it's moving from one topic to another. It feels random and scattered. And I thought so, too, the first time I read it. But then I thought, isn't that just like life? Life moves from one thing to the next, on any given day, you can move from the mundane moment to a significant turning point. At one moment, you're, you're taking in political information. The next minute, you're living life practically. The next minute, you're thinking thoughts philosophically. And things change from one moment to the next. In fact, in order to live according to wisdom, on any given day, you need to have uh, uh, wisdom in all of those various aspects of life. And that's what we get In this passage, it is a master course in wisdom. At one moment, we get wisdom for how to live when fools are occupying leadership positions. Then it changes to look at life under pressure. How do you live a, a wise life when it seems like pressure is mounting? It gives us wisdom on the basic everyday realities of the need to control our tongue. Then it's wisdom that pans out to see society at large. And it's also wisdom that dials in to see... The heart of the problem, which is the problem of the heart. It's all over the place, and yet it's wisdom that we all need. And as we work through this passage, we're gonna see five different lessons. First, in chapter 9, verses 13 to 18, we'll see that wisdom is often ignored. Wisdom is often ignored. One of the tragedies of life in a broken world is that wisdom is often overlooked and ignored usually to the detriment of those who need it most. That's our first lesson. Wisdom is often ignored. And our second lesson comes in chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. We'll see that wisdom is easily contaminated. Just like the water in Flint was easily contaminated, we'll see that wisdom is only profitable to the degree that it remains pure. If wisdom becomes contaminated, it's no longer wisdom. And he's going to tell us that one of the main reasons why wisdom goes sour... Is because of our hearts. Wisdom is easily contaminated. And then our third lesson in chapter 10, verses 4 to 7, we'll see that wisdom is calm under pressure. Even under foolish leadership, wisdom knows how to remain calm and make good decisions. See, there's a pressure and a tendency when when, when, when we feel frenetic and we feel um, anxious and stressed to make these rash kind of decisions decisions and third and fourth in chapter 10 verses 8 to 11 we'll see that wisdom is patient and decisive now those seem like they're they're opposite how can you be patient and decisive well that's wisdom wisdom carefully navigates the path between hasty rash decisions and paralysis by analysis and then finally in chapter 10 verses 12 to 20 we'll see that wisdom is thoughtful with words. Taming the tongue is one of the distinguishing marks of wisdom. And those that desire to live wise lives will learn how to take control over their tongues rather than letting their tongues control them. Five lessons, we've got a lot of ground to cover. So let's jump right into it in chapter 9, verse 13, to see our first lesson. Wisdom is often ignored. Verse 13, Solomon writes, I have seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. So here's a story. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So here the preacher begins with an anecdote. As he begins his master course, he shares a story about a small city who's under attack by a larger city with a stronger army. And you would expect that this bigger city will just blow right through them. They're no match for them. But in a surprising turn of events, the small city is delivered Not by might, not by the strength of a warrior, but by the wisdom of a poor man. This poor man's a nobody. We don't even know his name. He doesn't come from means. He doesn't doesn't come from nobility. And yet he's able to save the city through wisdom. And the power of the anecdote is that by his wisdom, he's able to come up with a plan to defeat the larger enemy. That's why the preacher tells us wisdom is better than strength. And you would think, after all of that, wouldn't this town honor this man? Wouldn't they say, man, we we had no idea the kind of wisdom that you have. We need you. We need need you to be in leadership. We need you to, to help us think through how to lead this community. Put him in leadership. Give him a place of influence due to his great wisdom and leadership. And yet... The sting of this story is not that there's some bully larger city that tried to overpower a smaller town. We would expect that, right? That's what uh, dominating forces seek to do. They want to dominate. No, the tragedy of this story is that no one remembered the poor man. In a moment of desperation, they were willing to hear any plans, so they they listened to him. But once things settled down, no one remembers him anymore. No one valued him. His wisdom. In a moment of desperation with no other alternative, they were willing to listen to him, but in the aftermath, his wisdom is ignored and despised. Now look at verse 17. Solomon says, The words of the wise are heard in quiet. They're better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Here the preacher recognizes, that the wise despise their wisdom, in calm whispers rather uh, they dispense their wisdom in calm whispers rather than frantic shouts. See, if we want to be a people who are marked by wisdom, we need to learn to be listening. We've got to be good listeners because wisdom is often whispered, not shouted. That's why it's often not heard. We need to be listening for the calm, wise whispers of wisdom instead of the noise of fools. See, noise is plentiful in our culture, isn't it? There's always someone shouting loudest, always claiming to have the answers. And this lesson comes with a sober reminder. Wisdom and foolishness can exert a powerful influence on your life. Wisdom has the potential to to be a blessing. It has the potential to offer goodness or the opposite is equally true. One sinner can destroy much good. It often just takes one sinner to destroy much good. So here's that first lesson. Wisdom is often ignored. And so what is Solomon saying? He's saying pursue it. You've got to make an intentional desire to pursue wisdom. We don't usually accidentally stumble into wisdom our disposition is to ignore it. So what does it mean to pursue wisdom? Well, it means to be active listeners. It means to go after it, to be teachable. You need to start with the presupposition that you don't know it all. So if you begin with, I know it all, then why would you ever be listening for wisdom? But if you begin with, I don't have it all figured out. I have much to learn. That, that will create in you a need and a desire for wisdom. So where do you go for it? See if you value wisdom, when you find a good source of wisdom, you won't despise it. You won't ignore it. You'll you'll be you'll be uh, longing for it. So where can you go for wisdom? Well, first, the Bible says go to the true source of wisdom. Do you know in James chapter 1 verse 5, here's a promise of God. James writes this, if any of you lacks wisdom, so as you hear that right now, you should go, "Well, that's me." Right? If anyone's here like, "Eh, I don't know, that's the you're already on the path of the fool. This is saying if any of you lacks wisdom with with like a little parenthesis, meaning that's all of us. That's every single one of us. So what do we do since we lack wisdom? Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. God's word says if you lack wisdom and that's you, ask God for it. Ask God and he will give it to you generously. He's not stingy with wisdom, guys. He's generous. Often, I think we have not because we ask not. Go to the true source of wisdom. If you want to be wise and gain from wisdom's influence on your life, you have to seriously pursue it. And you must regularly ask God for it. I think often... When we're in these crisis situations, we might go, oh gosh, I need to ask God for it. And that's fine and good, and and you definitely should. But I think this has pictured something more regular, something more constant, something more everyday. Because wisdom is usually not gained in a momentary instant. Wisdom is gained in the regular, everyday life. It comes in small installments. That's how you gain these lessons of wisdom. And so, by faith, regularly ask God to give you wisdom. And then, secondly, invite people into your life who are wise. When you meet someone who has uh, wisdom in a certain area that you don't, you, you, you should uh, want to be around them. You should seek their counsel. You should listen to what they have to say. You should say, Hey, can, let me buy you lunch so I can pick your brain. I want to learn from you. Seek out the counsel of wise people and listen to what they have to say. Wisdom is often ignored. So the first lesson is don't be a fool. Pursue wisdom. Second lesson, wisdom is easily contaminated. Look at verse 1 in chapter 10. Solomon says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. In the ancient world, ointments and oils and perfumes were extremely expensive. Part of that is because it took a lot of time and material to, to get them. So you had, you had, They didn't have modern machines to, to squeeze out the, the oils and things. And so it was labor intensive. And the, just the raw materials themselves were really uh, expensive. And so if you had, uh, if you were making an ointment or a perfume... Uh, and then only to have it spoiled because some flies landed in it and started and died and started fermenting it and stink it up uh, it it would, it, would, it would just be a huge waste of time and money and effort and it doesn't take many dead flies to spoil the whole batch and not only that but flies are kind of drawn to it they're they're drawn to these smells and so it was a ve- it, it was a, it's a very powerful metaphor and so if you were going to make Perfume, if you were going to do that, then you knew you needed to guard it. You needed to protect it. You needed to keep it such that the flies would not get into the ointment. See, if a perfume isn't well guarded, flies will inevitably be drawn to it. They'll get stuck in it. They'll die. They'll ferment and it'll ruin the whole batch. And that's the point. Wisdom, just like this perfume, can easily become contaminated. That's the problem with purity. See, it only takes a little bit to become impure. See, purity is always at risk. It's always in danger of becoming impure. Just like wisdom. It's always at risk of becoming contaminated. See, folly, one of the pernicious realities of folly is that it's never content to just go be on its own. Fools aren't content to just go be fools by themselves on the side and leave everybody else alone. No, fools long to get into the wise crowd and contaminate it. Foolishness loves to compromise wisdom. Fools are going to fool, right? It only takes a little bit of folly to contaminate wisdom. As I was reading about the Flint water crisis this week for the introduction, I was thinking, you know, as the the pipes were getting uh, uh, corroded and you have lead leaching in, I was like, how much are we talking about? Like, what does it take to contaminate drinking water? And here was the answer. Fifteen parts per billion. Now, I thought, I don't really know what a billion is. Like, I can't conceive of a billion of anything, okay? So I had to break it down. So if, if, you're, if, you're like, if you're not like me and you already get it, that's great. But for the rest of us, let me break that down. So what, what 15 ppb means, 15 parts per billion, is 15 drops of lead into 15 billion drops of water. Now you're asking, okay, what is 15 billion drops of water? It's, the, it's about the average size of a swimming pool. Okay, So it's about 13,000 gallons, which is about a 15 by 30 foot long swimming pool. So get in your mind this average size swimming pool in someone's backyard. That's filled with 13,000 gallons of water. And that is 15 billion droplets. So imagine someone coming and just dropping a little, little medicine dropper. Just 15 drops of lead. And all of a sudden that is highly toxic. Now, I'm glad I read that because not that this scenario would ever happen. But if I were standing at a a pool with like drinking water and you drop 15 droplets of water and dare me to drink it, I'd be like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. But it's not fine. It's extremely toxic. It just takes a little bit to make drinking water unsafe. And that's the point. Wisdom, like water, can easily become contaminated and the implication then is this if wisdom is easily contaminated then what are you supposed to do guard it you're supposed to protect it just like the 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 policy makers are supposed to protect the water lines like you just you can't contaminate the water it's too important just like the perfumer has to keep safe this this jar so that flies don't get into it Solomon is saying you must guard and protect wisdom you just can't leave it alone it will easily become contaminated what does it take to ruin a perfectly good jar of perfume just a few dead flies what does it take to ruin a drinking supply just a few drops of lead what does it take to ruin a good reputation just one foolish decision you can have a lifetime of wise living And in five minutes ruin it all. You must guard wisdom. One moment of folly can ruin a fragrant reputation. What he's he's getting at here is this. It takes so much more effort to create something. And it takes far less to ruin something. You know how long it takes to build a house? Months. Right? How long does it take to knock it down? Like one bulldozer. You can have a whole house gone, leveled in a moment. It takes a lot longer to build something than it does to destroy it. That's why it must be guarded. Now, why are we so prone to folly? Look what it says next. Verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Now, when we hear this right and left, I think in our culture, we tend to think of politics. This is not a a preference for right turns over left turns or an endorsement of right-wing politics over left-wing politics. Let me just translate this verse in a way that will make that immediately clear. What he's saying is, a wise man's heart inclines him aright, but a fool's heart inclines him astray. A wise man's heart leads him on the path of righteousness, while a fool's heart leads him on the path of folly. And when our hearts lack the sensibility of godliness, not only do we go astray, but this is saying our actions show it. Did you hear what he said? He says that when a fool walks in the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Now he doesn't actually go, like fools don't usually announce their foolishness. Like, I'm a fool, I'm a fool, I'm a fool. But by their living, we look at them and go, that's a fool, right? Their actions betray them. They show it. Eventually it becomes to everyone around that they have given in to folly and sin. And so what the preacher does here is he gets to the heart of the problem, which is the problem of the heart. The reason we go astray is because our hearts are inclined Driven, our hearts are desire mechanisms. We, we, it, it just it produces desires, and then we live according to those desires. You do what you do because of what you love. That's what this verse is saying. The heart of the wise inclines them to the right, and the heart of fools to the left. We are prone to foolishness because our hearts are broken. That's what Jeremiah seventeen nine says. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, who can understand it? If I were to translate this into modern language, it would be this. My feelings, my desires are deceitful above all things, desperately sick, and who can understand it? Now do you see how that flies in the face of our culture? Our culture says if you feel it or if you desire it, it must be good. How could you ever, you're so awesome, how could you ever have bad desires and bad feelings? Do you see how this verse is saying that 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 is absolute foolishness? Just because you feel something doesn't make it right. Now, I'm not saying all of your feelings are wrong, but you should be suspicious of them. To, To our teenagers here, your feelings are sus, okay? All right, okay. You should should doubt them. Why? Because your heart is deceitful. Just because you feel it, just because you want it, it doesn't make it right. When we live rightly or when we go astray, we are following the inclination, the desires of our heart. We pursue the desires of our heart. So if you want to change, if you want to do something differently, then what? You have to change what you love. You have to change what you want. It starts from the inside out. Now the beauty is, apart from the gospel, you're not going to change. Your heart is desperately sick and broken, and it won't get better on its own. In fact, it actually just gets worse on its own. So if you want your heart to change, you've got to have a heart surgeon who can actually change it. And that's the power of the gospel. We are the only religion that believes you can actually change not just modify behavior, but actually change from the inside out. See, God doesn't merely forgive your sins and then say, now you better fix yourself. Listen, I pardoned you, but you better get it together. That is anti-gospel. The opposite of the gospel. That is called self-help. That is, listen, I'm going I'm to get you patched up, but then you better figure it out. Right? That's not the gospel. Here's the gospel. God forgives your sins... Purely and only on the reality that Jesus died in your place for your sins. That's why Paul says he who knew no sin became sin. So Jesus, a.k.a. knew no sin, innocent completely, takes on all of your sin. And he dies as if he had done it. He stands in your place. Why? All of us deserve death. So he said, I'll stand in their place. The punishment that was due to them, I'll take it on. So it's on the basis of that that God can say, okay, I can forgive you. That's why Paul also says that the record of our sin, all of our sin, the record of it, the debt, the the, the transcript of all of our sin was nailed to the cross. That's what Jesus was dying for, our sin. So he paid the penalty. That's why God can forgive you. But the gospel goes beyond that. We're forgiven, yes, because of the finished work of Christ. But though the work of the cross is finished, don't miss this, the power of the cross continues to work in our lives. The work is done, but it's the kind of work that has ongoing implications. So God continues his work of salvation by transforming your heart. Now, there's very little change. Like on the day you become a Christian, the very next day, you look identical to to you before. Right? Nothing's really changed. But the gospel starts to work in your heart so that year by year, decade over decade, as that slow, good kingdom work is happening in your heart, you do start to do things different. You start to go, oh. I used to be, uh, this is the same situation that a year ago, I would have totally lost it. Or this is a scenario where a few years ago, I would have totally given in to that temptation. But now I I find in myself a, a resistance that wasn't there before. What is that? That's the work of the gospel. That's the power of transformation. So that we progressively, over time, begin to desire righteousness and godliness. So friends, our union with Christ, the fact that we're joined to Jesus, is not only the basis of our justification, being declared righteous, being forgiven, it's also the source of our sanctification, where we actually change, become transformed. So the more we lean into our relationship with Christ, the more we will become like him. Like I said earlier, that change doesn't happen overnight. But the implication is... That over time we will change. So if wisdom is easily contaminated by folly and our hearts drive us in the direction of wisdom and foolishness, then the implication is guard your hearts. Just like we need to guard the perfume, guard the water, we need to guard our hearts so that we allow for the time to happen where we're changed by God's work of sanctification. That's why Solomon, who wrote this book, also wrote Proverbs, says in chapter 4, verse 23, keep Your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. You hear what he's saying? That word keep is the Hebrew word for guard and protect. We think of keep as like just have it. No, no. The Hebrew concept of keep is guard and protect. Guard and protect your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. The heart is easily contaminated, easily led astray. So he says, protect your heart. So here's practically what that means. Because sin makes us blind to our foolishness, we don't often see that we're being fools in the moment. It's usually in the aftermath, afterwards, that we go, I I was a fool there. I lacked wisdom there. And that's the time to do a good autopsy on your heart. And not just ask, like, what did I do? But ask, why did I do that? You have to get it in your head. You do what you do because of what you love. It is, it is coming from your heart. So until you've asked heart level questions, you will not find heart level change. So when you in the autopsy room, when you're thinking about the, the thing you did, you have to go back and go, what was I wanting in that moment? What was I truly desiring? Why did I sin in this way? What was I desiring? Was it approval? Was it comfort? Was it power? Was it control? See, these are deeper questions of the heart. If you want to learn more about how to grow in this area of heart level sanctification, let me commend to you three books. All three meet our criteria of being clear, concise, and compelling. Okay, short reads, they get to the point, and they are fantastic. The first is, if you're writing these down, write them down. We'll put them in the sink. How does sanctification work? By David Powlison. He is like a Jedi master of the heart. Okay, the next two guys I'm going to read are like influenced by him. This would be one of the best ones I, would, I could recommend. How does sanctification work? By David Powlison. The second is The Whole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung. The Hole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung. And then the third, You Can Change by Tim Chester. You Can Change by Tim Chester. There are far better things that you could do than, than uh, like, let me commend you if you're not reading your Bible, start there. But if you're also reading your Bible and you want to grow in sanctification, any of these three books would be uh, very, very helpful. So lesson one, wisdom is often ignored, so pursue it. Lesson two, wisdom is easily contaminated, so guard it. Now lesson three, wisdom is calm under pressure. Verse four, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place for calmness Uh, For calmness will lay great offense to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. So again, like I told you, this is just going to move from one thing to the next. The preacher moves from the realm of the heart to the realities of living under leadership in a broken world. Verses 5 and 6 speak to the unpredictability in life, specifically in the realm of leadership. Now you would think that the cream rises to the top. That the best leaders, proven leaders, are put in the highest positions of leadership. From CEOs to politicians to military commanders, you would think that we would put our best in the highest places of leadership. But the preacher says, nope, we don't do that. I mean, just turn on the news. Right, In every realm you see abject foolishness in the highest offices in the land. So in a broken, heavily plagued world like ours, fools often rise to positions of prominence that far exceed their ability and wisdom. It was It's true today, it was true then, it'll be true tomorrow. So when he says here the rich, he doesn't mean wealthy per se. He's talking about the deserving, those that have worked hard to get to where they are, those who have proven ability and experiential wisdom. He's saying those kinds of people don't often, uh, they're not always the ones in the positions of leadership. Just because someone has the title doesn't mean they have the actual wise experience to lead in that way. And that, that's what he says, that's an evil that I've seen. It's part of this, this heaviness, this, this futility in the world. And with the, the fools often bring their foolishness with them into their leadership. And so the, the practical reality is, is there's going to be some times where you're under that kind of leadership. Where you look up the chain and you go, there are fools above me. Whether that's politicians, whether that's your boss, right? And here's the scenario. There's going to be times when someone in authority over you gets angry with you like undeservedly angry at you. And you'll feel in that moment an impulse of indignation to take your ball and go home, to just storm out of there, or to run your mouth, right? I think in, 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 in this context, in, in this chapter, it's talking about a ruler, but I think for our context, it might be easiest to think of like a work environment. So here's the scenario. Maybe your boss blames you wrongly for a project getting derailed. And you know it's not your fault. You know that there's lots of other factors. But in their own foolishness, they don't uh, want to look at it in a nuanced kind of way. They just want someone to blame. And they're coming down hard on you. Or maybe you'll be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like people have bad days and they take it out on other people. Whatever the case, here's what this uh, lesson is teaching us. Stay calm. Don't make hasty, rash decisions. Now hear me, that doesn't mean that later on a conversation doesn't need to happen. Like where you say, hey, you can't talk to me like that. Doesn't mean you don't go to HR. I'm not saying those things. I'm just saying in that moment, wisdom will stay calm. You're going to breathe and you're going to wait out the pressure. That doesn't mean you can never quit your job or move on. Perhaps after spending some time thinking about it, you go, yeah, I, I need to leave this position. Perhaps you're in an environment that's so volatile that you need to leave sooner. But what this generally is saying is wisdom will process the situation in the moment and not make hasty, rash, momentary decisions. That's good advice. And because wisdom is principial in nature, we can just even broaden it by saying wisdom is calm under pressure. That in a pressurized situation, that's not often the best time to make life-changing decisions. And so he's saying fight the impulse to make significant decisions in the midst of pressurized situations where you're not thinking clearly. It doesn't mean that you'll never have to make decisions in those moments, but he's saying limit the impact of those decisions. Don't make the biggest decisions of your life in the midst of immense pressure. Zach S. Wine summarizes this section well. He says, when we're fortunate to experience wise leadership, it sets the table of our lives with good food that is knowledgeably prepared, fairly portioned, and generously given. You hear that? He's saying, when we're under good leadership, it's like a, a good meal being set before you. Everyone gets good food the right amount. It's awesome. But in contrast, folly in leadership breaks the table legs, dirties both the floor and the food, and makes a joke of it all. Any of us called to lead, whether as a king or governor, a parent, teacher, pastor, project manager, coach, or friend, will need the grace of the preacher's wisdom. Those of us, and this is all of us, whether you're a leader in some realm, you might find yourself a non-leader in another realm, right? There are certain rooms I walk into, I'm the leader, and there are certain rooms I walk into, and I'm the follower. That's all of us, that's life. Those of us who follow pray that our leaders can lay to heart the preacher's words. Lesson one. Wisdom is often ignored, so pursue it. Lesson two, wisdom is easily contaminated, so guard it. Lesson three, wisdom is common to pressure, so resist rash decisions. Now lesson four, wisdom is prepared and decisive. Verse eight, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. These verses here... They describe several accidents by people doing common trades, everyday realities. And on the surface, you might think he's just talking about the unpredictability of life. But in the reality that sometimes unfortunate accidents happen. But that's not what he's talking about here. If you think about the context about wisdom and foolishness, he's saying, listen, fools lack sense. And as such, they're often careless in the things that they do. And so they they bring that foolishness with them into these common everyday realities now I've coached Little League Baseball for several years now and it is just it, it happens almost every single season I'll get an email from a parent that says hey um, so-and-so is out for the season they, they broke an arm or hey they, uh, they, they 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 broke their leg or hey they had they, you know they got hit on the head by one thing or another and I always ask like hey tell me what happened because the reality is there there are acts of God meaning like, you can't change what happened and things are beyond your control. Uh, you, you get into an accident through no fault of your own and there's nothing you can do about it. But in addition to acts of God, there are also acts of stupidity. Meaning this accident wasn't really an accident. Right? It could have been presented. You get hurt because of carelessness and taking unnecessary risks. And I think that's what the writer has in mind. The fool... ...doesn't consider the implication of their actions. They are ready, fire, aim kind of people. They don't think, what will happen if I do this? They do before they think. And therefore, they get hurt in the midst of everyday activities. And these verses powerfully observe... ...that a fool has the tendency towards self-destruction. In other words... A fool is his own worst enemy. Now look at verse ten. If the iron or the axe is blunt, and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. I'm just curious. Anyone ever chopped wood before? Split wood? You, have you ever done it with like with a sharp blade or a dull blade? You know, if you have, you know the the, the power of this analogy. Verse eleven. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Now the preacher gives us a couple of proverbs to help guide us on the path of wisdom. and the first proverb, you can picture a person splitting wood with a dull axe blade. Can it be done? The answer is yes. Does it require more effort? The answer is yes. And it is also much more dangerous. The blade can slip off of the surface and come right down on your foot where a sharp blade hits. It's precise and it does the work. In this case, wisdom says it's better to be patient and prepared. If you see that your ax is dull, instead of just going, no, no, we just got to get the job done. It's saying be patient, be prepared, slow down, sharpen the blade. It's better to take the extra time, sharpen the blade than just getting to work because your work will become more efficient and effective yes it'll take some time on the front end but you'll gain all that time in the back end because you have a better tool this is a a proverb that pictures the wisdom of patience and preparedness it is better to be prepared than to act too quickly without thought now the next proverb is a contrasting proverb He says, it pictures a a snake charmer not doing his job of charming the snake. And he says, what good is someone who has the skill to charm the snake but delays and takes too long to apply the charm? What happens to an uncharmed snake? He's going to bite you. This is a proverb about taking action and being decisive. This is the other side of the coin. So here's what he's saying. You can overthink some things. You can over-prepare. Have you ever heard of the phrase paralysis by analysis? You, you, you spend so much time analyzing the problem that you become paralyzed by it. So do you see what's going on here? The question is, does wisdom prefer patience or action? Which is it? Does, does wisdom prefer preparedness or decisiveness? The answer is yes. Both, both are extremely valuable for a life of wisdom. Be prepared, but also learn to be decisive. Wisdom learns that you can over-prepare or you can under-prepare. That you can be too hasty with decisions and that you sometimes need to just make the decision. The wise will learn to be prepared and decisive. And wisdom will learn to discern the difference. A lot of this comes from experience. See, the wise, it's not that the wise don't make mistakes, it's that the wise learn from them. The fool keeps walking down the path of stupidity where the wise realizes and recognizes what I've done here is foolish and then course corrects to get back on the path of wisdom. Lesson one. Wisdom is often ignored, so pursue it. Lesson two, wisdom is easily contaminated, so guard it. Lesson three, wisdom is common to pressure, so resist rash decisions. Lesson four, wisdom is prepared and decisive, so learn both. Become a master at both. Final lesson, wisdom is thoughtful with words. Verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. Verses 12 to 20, are an extended section on wisdom and the foolishness of our words. Now, if you were to read the book of Proverbs, you know what the number one topic is in the whole book of Proverbs? Of all of the things that Proverbs talks about, our words are the number one topic. There are very few things like our words that can lead us into paths of righteousness or instantaneously lead us on the path of the fool. And in verse 12... You could almost say that the dividing line between wisdom and folly is the tongue. So much good and so much evil comes right here. And in verse 12, the preacher says, our words have impact and consequence. And I don't have to tell you that. You know that they do. Wise words lead to favor while the words of the fool consume him. One of my constant refrains to my children is... Just like close your mouth. Just like, just, just, just close it. You would do, you, when you feel angry, frustrated, whatever. Just, just close it. So much bad happens in those 30 to 60 seconds that follow when you're mad or frustrated, right? Learn to close it. And it's not just teenagers and children. That's all of us. Our words can be destructive or beneficial. Our words can help us or they can hurt us. And there's not a person in this room who hasn't experienced this. I saw most of you smile when I said that. Why? Because you're thinking about times where you've done that. Everyone knows the truth of this proverb, not in some theoretical sense, but from personal experience. The question is, will we learn to be thoughtful and measured with our words? Or will we just keep running our mouths? The preacher goes on, verse 13, the beginning, of words, uh, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what will be, and who can tell him what will be after. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. He goes on to tell us about the words of the fool. He talks, he says so many things, but nothing of substance he talks to hear himself talks he talks but it adds nothing to the conversation the picture here is of a person wandering aimlessly through the city they're moving they're walking but they're going with no direction and no purpose that's the words of a fool do you know plato once said wise men speak because they have something to say fools speak because they have to say something and the preacher finishes with another anecdote he says woe to you O land when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning happy or blessed are you O land when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks the fools say bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything verse 20 even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. So let me unpack this part. The, king, uh, the preacher uh, pictures two kingdoms. One kingdom is ruled by immature self-indulgence and self-interested leadership. You heard that when he talked about princes feasting in the morning when they should be getting to work. Your king is a child, meaning he's immature. And then this other kingdom, characterized by mature, strong leadership. Yes, they feast, but they do so for strength, not for drunkenness. They don't let the roof sink in. Now, their leaders are marked by self-control and sobriety. So here's the lesson. You might find yourself at any point in your life under either one of those leaderships. You might find yourself going, I'm under good, wise leadership, or I'm under immature, self interested leadership. Here's the lesson be careful how you speak about those in leadership. Be careful about how you speak about those in leadership. Why? Because word travels fast. You tell someone you think, I can trust them, this is in confidence, you're bad mouthing someone in leadership. And then what inevitably happens, it comes around to that person. Be careful with how you speak. Words travel fast. Even in private, our words have a way of becoming public. Now, in the world they lived in, free speech was not a widespread right. Speaking out against a king could result in your death. Now, Our job as modern readers is to go, well, how can I think about that situation in my particular context? So praise God, I love that we live in a country of free speech where we can speak out against leaders and politicians and all sorts of things. But ask yourself, just because something is permissible, is it profitable? Just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do something. The principle here is to learn to be measured and thoughtful with our words. Did you catch the imagery here in verse 20 about a bird of the air carrying your voice to tell the matter? It's like the preacher knew that one day the symbol of Twitter would be a little bird. When I read that, I was like, how did he know? How did he know? Right? A bird of the air carrying your voice to the ends of the earth. Guys, that's social media. Isn't it? Our words can be carried across the globe in an instant. And this proverb is challenging us to ask, how often are we thoughtful about what we say on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever your particular favorite platform is? How often are we careful and thoughtful? Or do we just, you know, frantically type those things and hit send and just go, I hope that doesn't blow up the world, you know? I mean people have lost jobs for things they've tweeted, right? That stuff just stays out there. It doesn't go away. People often ask me why I don't see you like posting a lot of stuff and I go, "I am terrified to post anything anywhere." Everything gets misunderstood, everything gets misread, and I don't feel like I have to speak into every single situation that happens in the entire world. Right? I'm not saying you can't. I am saying be thoughtful and measured with how you do. Ask yourself, do I have something to add to this conversation? Or am I just adding noise? I'm not saying remain silent. I am saying, and I think what the Bible is saying, before you speak, be thoughtful, careful, and measured with your words. Friends, wise people speak because they have something to say. So if you have something to say, say it. But fools speak because they have to say something. Learn the difference. So the preacher has given us a master course in wisdom. Five lessons to consider as we put uh, wisdom into practice in our life. Lesson one, wisdom is often ignored, so pursue it. Lesson two, wisdom is easily contaminated, so guard it. Lesson three, wisdom is common to pressure, so resist rash decisions. Lesson four, wisdom is prepared and decisive, so learn both. Number five, wisdom is thoughtful with words, so be careful with your words. Now let me just state the obvious. You can't master this list in one sermon. Like just because we've been sitting here for 55 minutes doesn't mean you will all walk out of here wise. That's not how wisdom works. You have to drink from the fountain of wisdom every single day. And I would be remiss if not to add one bonus lesson. See, all of these lessons are great. And I think they would totally supply our lives with good, right direction. But without the primary lesson of putting our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, we would be living as fools. Because at the end of the day, all of this stuff is great, but it all true wisdom is jesus christ the apostle paul tells us that in 1 corinthians 1 24 that jesus christ is the true wisdom of god and as i thought about that this week and i looked at these things i looked i thought about how much jesus actually portrays these things like jesus is often ignored despised and rejected just like wisdom isn't he belief about him is easily contaminated right he was both prepared and decisive You see him in the Gospels drawing back, preparing his heart. And yet there were times where he just took necessary action. He was the most thoughtful person with his words because he actually had something to say. Under the pressure of the cross as humanity committed an abject uh, act of foolishness. Did he revile back? No. What did he do? He remained calm. So calm in fact that he began to pray for those killing him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, Jesus is the wisdom of God. And the wisest thing you could ever do is put your faith and trust in him. And then, from that place of faith, join him on the path of wisdom. Let's pray.